0: We're back for episode two with my man Frank Schiffman, Pittsburgh author. If you listened to our first podcast together, it was part one of Out of Place that detailed his uh, first job through college in the produce yards of the Pittsburgh Strip District in the 70s. And now we are going to read a short story. He is going to read a short story for us. My Bluebird of Happiness, which is about his transition from the produce yards into his first quote-unquote real job. So if you know what that's like, you have your rough and tough jobs, and now you got to gear up for the real world, this will shed some light on that from a uh, really smart guy, and it's, it's, you're going to enjoy
1: it. So hang out.
0: Let's, let's take it away, Frank.
1: Okay, well, thanks, Zach. Um, why don't we just go right into it then? Let's go right into okay. it. Okay. It was 9 a.m., Five hours earlier, my VW's headlamps illuminated the road I drove to work in Pittsburgh's Produce District. Now standing inside a cramped employee bathroom, a single bulb above a medicine cabinet was my only source of light. No matter, this was a big day. A day that held promise of jump-starting my career. The morning had been busy. Mondays generally were. After staging large orders for pickup, Sully, Jimmy Cal, Donnie, Timmy, Jake, and I began the onslaught of, bu- of loading box trucks and semis that arrived to be loaded. Handjacks, dollies, and forklifts were used to transport pallets of produce out of the bay doors at Mize Jet Air sales to the trucks that awaited them. Everything transpired at a frenetic pace. It was a workman's ballet whose audience of grumpy drivers never seemed to appreciate the synchronicity of it all. Instead, their attentions were focused on finding a parking slot, followed by shouting for service. The mild night air had given way to an unusually hot morning. My clothes were drenched in sweat, diluted by foul water that unexpectedly poured out from a wooden cabbage crate as I hoisted it onto a customer's tailgate. The palms of my hands had the feel of sandpaper. It would take another month after returning to Penn State before they would return to normal. The work was physically challenging, but the pay was good for a summer college kid like me. $6 an hour was a lot of money in 1976. The minimum wage was $2.30 per hour. Days before, I had asked Stanley Mize, the owner, if it would be okay for me to knock off early so I could interview for an internship at Ketchum McLeod and Grove. A Pittsburgh advertising agency ranked among the 20th largest agencies in the country. He told me he was proud of me, added that he wouldn't even dock my pay for the three hours of work I would miss. Just get that internship, he said. Stan was an imposing figure with an intimidating aura about him. He could be tough and demanding, yet there was a more genteel side to him that would emerge when he came to people he felt worked hard and were respectful. I had earned my place in that circle, having been in his summer employ for three years running. Looking in the mirror, unruly hair and facial smudges reflected back. So, too, a big smile. I hurriedly untied and removed my work boots and socks. Blue jeans came next, followed by stripping off my T-shirt. Adjustments of the sink handles set the water temperature just right. I fished out a washcloth from inside my gym bag and shoved it under the faucet. It was my salvation to removing much of the day's imprint on my skin, at least for the parts I could reach. Right guard deodorant and English leather cologne would mask what remained. Application of Colgate to my teeth and several brush strokes through my hair left me ready for my transformation from laborer to potential ad man. Just outside the door, I could hear the sounds of pallets being stacked and the shouts and laughter of the men responsible. A suit would have been the most appropriate attire for my interview, but I didn't own one. A blue sports jacket, gray slacks, white shirt, and yellow striped tie would have to do. I removed them from the garment bag hanging from the door handle and put them on. After adjusting the Windsor tie knot in my tie and slipping on a pair of freshly shined loafers, the transformation was complete. Moments later, all semblance of my former appearance was tucked away in my gym bag. It was time to go. Sully was the first to comment as I emerged from the basement and walked through the main loading area. Hey, will you look at that? Mr. College Kid is heading out for his interview. Cleans up pretty nice. you planning on coming back to see us working stiffs when you hit the big time college boy? Jimmy Cowell was standing on the sidewalk just outside the building. A Parodi cigar clenched between his teeth. He couldn't resist. Oh, yeah. Future Mr. Big Shot. Before you know it, his hands will be as smooth as a baby's ish. Then we'll see if he remembers us. Other loaders chimed in. They, too, joked and laughed. but But deep down, I knew they all wanted me to do well. We had become good friends. Friends that watched out for each other's backs. I might have been a summer worker. Yet they took me in as one of their own treated me no differently. Tomorrow, I'd be back working right alongside them. I climbed behind the wheel of my VW and pulled out from the company parking lot. For the next half mile, the buildings lining my route slowly changed from warehouses, wholesale shops, and fresh produce stands to office buildings, restaurants, and newsstands. Fifteen minutes later, the car was parked, and I stood outside of Four Gateway Center. Ketchum, McLeod, and Grove headquarters was 20 floors above. The agency lobby was large and majestic, a roster of prominent clients that included H.J. Hines, Westinghouse Electric, PPG Industries, Rockwell International, j Steel, Acura, McGraw-Hill Publications, and many more were emblazoned on the wall behind the receptionist desk. Can I help you? Yes, I'm here for an interview with Kathy Matthews. Sure, have a seat and I will let her know you're here. I settled into one of the sleek chrome and leather chairs that surrounded a sea glass coffee table. Looking around, all I could think was, oh yeah, I want to be a part of this world. Want it more than ever. Soon a young woman walked up to me. You must be frank. I'm Kathy Matthews. Come on back. Kathy was professional, but also approachable. We reviewed my portfolio, which contained published articles I had written in advertising and research projects conducted for classes at Penn State. We talked about my jobs as a tuxedo salesman, resident assistant, and summer laborer. I shared with her my aspiration to become an advertising account executive. I told her I believed that all I needed was an entry point and an internship with Ketchum would open that door. Her nods, smiles, and questions appeared to indicate that she liked what she heard and saw. I could feel the level of her encouragement rising with every sample I presented and the story behind it. Time flew by. The interview was coming to an end when Kathy smiled and said, when are you through working in the produce yards? I have three weeks left. If I don't secure an internship by then, I'll be heading back to State College. That shouldn't be a problem. We can have an offer out before the end of the week. We'd love to have you join us as an intern this fall. Excitement charged through my brain as I walked back to my car. An internship with Ketchum was the equivalent of winning the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. I was a good student, but not ranked among the most likely to succeed in my advertising major, yet I had just scored a position that very few of my classmates would ever match. When I reached the corner upon which the parking garage was located, I stopped to take in the buildings around me. Immediately to my left and one story up was a restaurant with floor-to-ceiling blue drapes. Through the windows, I could see well-dressed men and women having lunch at white linen-covered tables. I thought to myself, "Some day I'm gonna eat at that restaurant. Just then, I felt what seemed like a tap. It was no tap. A pigeon had shit on my shoulder. The Epilogue When I sent my request to intern at Ketchum at Clouding Grove into Penn State, the professor in charge of the program told me that he would not approve it. His explanation? I have another person in mind who would fill that position better than you. A last minute internship offer from another advertising agency by the name of Feldman & Kahn was approved and I took it. That year, Ketchum declined to take any interns from Penn State. I was left pondering if my own shot at the big time was a one-time thing. Following graduation, I went to work for Neville Chemical Company as an assistant advertising manager and then advertising manager. After a year and a half at Neville, I received a call from Kathy Matthews, who asked if I was interested in interviewing with Ketchum for the position of account executive working on the PPG Industries chemicals business. I got the job. Just in case you were wondering, I did eat in the restaurant with the blue curtains and white linen shortly thereafter. For many years, I occasionally stopped by the produce yards and visited with Jimmy Cal, Sully, and the rest of the crew. By then, my hands were not exactly like a baby's ass, as Jimmy Cal had predicted, but they were smooth. Nice,
0: nice, nice. Well done.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: So what did that bird shitting on your shoulder represent to you in that moment? What did that mean to you?
1: Well, it was kind of uh, my... Um, return to reality my reality at that particular point sure um, it was obviously ironic of course and uh, the funny thing was that you know I I looked over and I was like mortified <laughs> and I had to run back to the parking garage because I didn't even have any Kleenex in my pockets to take care of it, so it was it was pretty it was a pretty embarrassing moment
0: but those. Those that's a test of your character. That's what makes you. That's what makes you you. You got to bring yourself down to earth every once in a while. Do you feel yourself having to do that afterwards? Like that was a lesson learned. You know, you can't get too ahead of yourself, kind of thing. You got to keep in check.
1: Well, I would say, Zach, that um, the fact that as as many years ago as that was, uh-huh. you know, forty some years ago, and I still remember it. Exactly. That's what <laughs> um, I was getting at. Really. And, and, and still remember, you know, standing on that corner and the aspirations. I think the aspirations overall um, of wanting something so bad, being so charged, because Ketchum McLeod and Grove, I mean, they were, um, the, the, in those days, there used to be a saying uh, that if your parents could afford it, they would send you to Ketchum.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, the pay was so low. In those days okay <laughs> like you would go to work um, I, I ultimately went to work at Ketchum in uh, uh, 1978 and um, I think the pay for the average person at that at that time at Ketchum starting salaries were like $7,600 a year Holy shit! yeah 7600
0: even back then that's not much
1: not much no. and uh, I was fortunate because I had gone to work at, um, at Neville Chemical Company and a friend of mine actually Blattner Bruner the uh, Blattner Bruner advertising agency which is now I think it's just called Bruner mm-hmm. but Joe Blattner was working on Penn Avenue he had a little shop that was on the second floor of uh, of an office building down there and he called me and told me hey there's this position open at Neville Chemical Company, and and that's how I ended up there. And that that particular position actually paid better than than Ketchum uh, at that time. So the entry level people at Ketchum were making like seventy six hundred, and I went in the interim to off to Neville Chemical Company, and I think at that time I was probably making like maybe eighty six hundred a year or nine thousand. That was considered really good. Right, I can imagine. Right? And then of course. Um, I was very fortunate and I met a, a, a number of people that were in the publishing industry because I was advertising in different kinds of magazines and they were working on the PPG chemicals account and they went back to Ketchum as, as a small world and they said hey there's this guy he's working on Neville Island you should give him a call and they said oh, well we already know who he is nice. <laughs> and they and they called me
0: so ultimately it worked out that your teacher was a dick and didn't let you get that job <laughs> I
1: I would say I would say it had poetic justice yeah um, I love Penn State and I hate the fact that that other students that year didn't get that uh, an opportunity yeah um, but I think also that you didn't have to be the best in your class to he, this guy was all this professor was all hung up with you know you had to be the best and you had to have all the best grades and you had to there was a work ethic there, mm-hmm. and there was um, there were pieces that he didn't know about me. For example, you know that I had written articles and had them published, mm-hmm. and done different things and written uh, uh, different kinds of um, short stories, even in those days, but not like today. Okay. you know, just kind of different kind of thing. But but I had samples to show her. And um, you know, when, you go, when you go to school and you're studying the advertising profession in particular, you have to write ads and radio spots and those sort of things. So I had those examples to show her, as well as you know, later on when, when I had the chance to work at, on the PPG account. By that point in time already, I had done many things at Neville and uh, had you know, experiences with trade shows, things like that, so it was cool.
0: What separated you from the rest that Ketchum wanted you for the internship and not maybe the best student that you went out and you did you had all those publications and you showed that you went like above and beyond with work or is it just liked you as a person?
1: Well, I think it, it's certainly a combination of those things, yeah. but I also think that it, it it was in those days it probably still is it's who you know. Okay. So these um, publication folks had met me; they saw what I was doing they were calling on these big corporations and saw the types of people that were being served there and just could tell almost, you know, that last, in the last podcast we talked about certain people can meet with you, spend time with you. And then they just kind of know this person belongs here. Right. I think that's,
0: that psychoanalysis yeah. kind of thing. We were getting at before. Yeah. That's cool, man. Well that, that speaks to me personally because I'm, pretty much in no way qualified for like anything I do or have ever done you know I've never uh, I didn't go to college I don't have a degree I have Mm -hmm. like training certifications there are no podcast certifications I didn't you know I don't know what I'm doing so thank you for uh, sharing your story on this podcast but anyway I always feel like I have to prove that you don't have to be like the best in your class or the most qualified to get the position you know or to succeed you just have to work hard and believe in yourself kind of thing it's kind of romantic but I kind of hold on to that so I think a lot of us do so that whole story kind of speaks to me especially feeling out of place you know when you're going for your interview you're kind of intimidated you're at this like big fancy place and you're like well I just like got dressed in like a, a basement and barely pulled myself together to make right. it here kind of like right I just it just speaks volumes to me man so um yeah basically my my question is how did you did you do feel that same way when you were doing going through that process or did you just trust the process and just kept going
1: um I think you, you know I, I appreciate you sharing what you did with me just now um, yeah. and I adhere to a lot of what you're talking about getting out there and just doing it mm-hmm. um, the fact that that if you are like you know, the, at the head of your class, or if you're at the top of your game, really at the top of your game, and there's a great book out um, called Good to Great, and it talks about um, people that, uh, you know, get to the top, and then they become hubris. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of think they can't do anything wrong, and they, they know all the answers. Um, you really want to avoid ever getting to that kind of a point in in, in time. Uh-huh. You you just want to, you know, if there's always something ahead of you, a golden ring to reach for, um, and you and you have the um, the desire. And the nothing's going to stop me, kind of feeling, um, you know, that gets tempered in certain ways along the way, but. Um, it's just enriching and great and it's it's always guided me yeah. and uh, hopefully something like that always guides you definitely every day um and and i think um you know as i as i look back at this particular story and um everything that transpired for me uh the the fact that um i was able to you know, kind of look in that mirror and get a big smile on my face because I knew this was only, you know, I knew that what I was doing there was just a, uh, a stopover. Mm-hmm. But I love what I did down there. Um, I worked really hard and, um, and those guys respected that. And I respected them. And, um, and I, you know, I never looked down on what they were doing it's just like in the story i i go back i would go down there sometimes after work when the night crew would would be just starting up you know because there were there were people in shifts that were down there anyway and even earlier than when i would like they they'd start setting up maybe at nine o'clock at night but i didn't arrive there till three but um so You know, I might be downtown, and I would have gone out with my friends and had some drinks or whatever. And then afterwards, I'd drive over to the Strip District and see some of those guys. Like, just to say, hey? Yeah. That's great, man. Just to say hello and see what was going on. And in fact, um, uh, as time went on, I I got a a phone call one day from a guy that was... uh, He was the vice president of Equibank. I didn't know who he was, though, because somebody my my boss at the time it said hey can you help get this guy's kid a job you know and he, he called me up and he said hey here's my kid's credentials and i drove to those produce yards and i went to mike rabino's bananas and sat down with mike who was a penn state graduate okay. and um talked with him about you know this kid that wanted to see if this kid could get a job there and the kid goes down and he gets a job Nice, <laughs> he gets a job working in the produce yards, and his dad calls me up and he thanks me. And his dad and I became very good friends from that point on. We were really close friends. We played racquetball together. We did all kinds of stuff, you know. And he was he was the top communications guy at uh, at uh, Equibank at the time.
0: He had no idea at the time they knew no, I, his, about his position.
1: I no, absolutely no idea about his position, and and he. Um, he turned out to be uh, he turned out to be a very good friend and there, there were a lot of advertising agencies in Pittsburgh at that time. Pittsburgh was known for um, its advertising expertise. There were I, I probably there must have been I don't know 10 smaller well-known agencies around town. some big ones, some really big ones. Marsteller Steller was here, Creamer was here, Ketchum was here. Um, you know, if you could get a job with any of them, it was a big deal. It
0: was a very big deal. Safe to say, it was a pretty competitive environment then.
1: It was, and let me tell you, the way people dressed in those days okay. was, you know, suits, crisp suits,
0: to the nines. Is yes. Thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and where I came in, which is which is uh, an interesting time, because Mad Men, you know, was a big hit. Yeah. Right. Absolutely and uh, John Hamm and his crew, those guys would have been my bosses. Uh Okay, so that era in the uh, 1970s and early 80s was where those guys were already bringing up the younger troops in in the advertising business. So I would have worked for a guy like a a John Hamm and kind of did, and so in those days, you know, when you watch it on TV, they would all go out and they would drink all afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> they had bars in their in their um, offices and things. Well, on the floors that I I was uh, working, there were no bars or things like that in anybody's office. I think, and maybe in the upper floors, there may have been. Okay. But um, the good old days. Uh, you know the the, but there were three martini lunches. They still had them. I. I I don't do well with alcohol, so I was able to, you know, stay away from it like ninety percent of the time. Yeah, it could get in trouble too. They would go and they would, they would have three martinis and whatever, and they'd come back to work and they were perfectly fine. Um, At least for that that
0: liquid courage, it might like increase your confidence and you know you be able to, wheel and deal a little bit better, man. That might be part of that thing.
1: I'll tell you one thing that. My boss went out with me one time we were we were pitching a really big piece of business at PPG yeah. uh, we we're trying to take it away from another um, agency in town is not all of the business was uh, situated at Ketchum the vast majority like if they were spending in those days let's say the budget was two million dollars then overall they, they might put you know 1.7 million. In, in the hands of Ketchum, and then there might be a variety of other agencies and design firms that they worked with and writers and whatnot that they put the rest of the budget in for mm-hmm. production and all kinds of things. And we wanted this piece of business. It was, it was a really important piece of business. I, from, if memory serves me right, it was at least $100,000, $100,000 program. And this agency that had it was fabulous agency. Um, and it was very hard to take it away from them because they had had this piece of business probably for the last six years or so and done a great job. And my boss and I would put together this whole program and we went out to lunch and I'm telling you, he he probably had four martinis that day. Okay. And when we were, we were, when he was ordering his fourth martini, I said, you know, Ralph, it's a big day today. Um, maybe, maybe we ought to maybe you know you might not want to have that fourth drink because it's so important and he said to me Frankie me boy today you graduate which was you're going to make the presentation today wow, okay. to these executives and he was just going to sit there <laughs> while I made this presentation which we did and we did win the account it's not a bragging thing we did win hey, it man. this 100 piece 100,000 dollar piece of business and um and that was my graduation. That was where, you know, first test.
0: So how did you, how much time did you have to prepare for that test? I
1: had a, I had a good bit of did time, you, okay. but wasn't expecting wasn't like... to be the, the front guy to actually do the presentation. Because usually when it was that big, you know, you shared it, uh-huh. uh, he would take the lead, he'd tee it up, he'd go through the whole process, and then it would be my turn. To maybe for certain segments and how we were going to do it and, and how we were going to procure certain things because these were big three dimensional advertising programs where you'd mail out uh, records or trains or you know, okay, even tennis shoes we were mailing out at one time to, oh, wow. to customers for a program called Keep It Running. Wow. Um, That's and really cool, man. so it was always different things, but. Where But there we were, man. We were in the the, uh, top vice uh, president's office for a division. And he was just like, go ahead.
0: And for someone like me that doesn't really understand, like, that whole world and what goes on. So when you had to present to the vice president stuff, what exactly does that mean in layman's terms? Like, what did you have to do? How did you have to prepare that, especially for it being your first one? I'm just personally curious. Yeah, no, I,
1: I think you know it's a, it's a great question and and certain things are are um, self-evident, such sure. as what are we trying to accomplish here? What's our goal? Mm-hmm. You know they had done this on an annual basis. They were at that time PPG had um, built a new plant in Puerto Rico, and they were um, very interested in in letting the world know how powerful they were. Uh, in terms of their production capabilities, their uh, gener- their power generation capabilities because these chemical plants use a lot of energy and whatnot. So that particular, I remember it well because that series was called the Big Bright and Timely Series. So we were talking about this, this, this scale of the ability to provide tank cars all over the country in different parts, you know, different parts of regions and whatnot, and then um, the brightness was how much uh, energy we were generating ourselves, which was like enough energy to light up a, a city, a major city in the United well, States. Sure. And timely was our ability to get the product to you um, in a timely fashion. And So we had different elements that we were presenting at that time. And we, the idea was to, um, because when you're in that big, when you're that big, And you had Olin Corporation and Oxy Corporation and a a whole slew of these others that were out there um, that you were kind of competing with, but everybody knew who you were, so you're not out there like telling them who you are. You're not trying to prove yourself? You're just Just trying to say to them, we're a little better than the next guy. Okay. And the one thing about PPG that was always um, something that... I've always been proud of as far as a corporation here in Pittsburgh is when you say that name on the road, it is instant. It's like you are talking about one of the finest companies that people know all over the world, and it opens a door very quickly. So it was reinforcing their position. Um, and it was, you know, we talk in today's business where we talk a lot about retention, retaining your accounts. Because it's so difficult to replace an account if you lose it mm-hmm. that in for its day they didn't call it retention but that was retention and that was you know the, when you're dealing commodity chemicals which is what PBG at that time was largely involved with chlorine caustic solvents is how much of a difference is there <laughs> you know but you you want to be able to show that you got the purity you have the you know you're generating your own power so your facilities aren't going to go down and you're 24-7 and whatnot. So so preparing for a, a presentation like that, um, you your objective is, yeah, you want to get the inquiries back from what you're sending out there um, because you never, you know, it's kind of rare to have 100% of the business but you always were trying to get it, you know, so maybe you had 70% you wanted to get 80%. Okay. Something. So this could influence that kind of a move, and it reinforced the position that PPG at that time had in the marketplace. I mean, that, most people don't realize in this city, for example, when you talk about PPG, and I know a lot about PPG, um, it, was, it was always ranked in like the Forbes um, corporations, best corporations in America, sometimes number one, number two, and most people in this town have. They don't know. They don't have an idea that that a company like that has that kind of ranking. Right. Worldwide.
0: Right. Yeah. I'm admittedly, I had no idea.
1: Yeah, and so being a, a, at that time engaged with them, working on their account, sure, was huge for me. I can imagine. It was it was massive. How me. old were you at this point? Well, at that time, I was about 24. Wow. That's young younger than yeah. me yeah yeah 24 25 and and that's why it was so crazy for him yeah, to that's uh, absolutely crazy. So say
0: <laughs> you must have been just an exceptional dude is what I, I mean you are not to get you know over complimentary or anything but just putting myself in your position at that time
1: sincere that has, is what i would say okay. very sincere and i think the the work ethic came across like this guy, important. you know you asked me like how did you prepare for this When you're an account executive and you were working for Ketchum, you were the leader of that project. So, although my boss would be the presenter and whatnot, we talked about people at the top and then people. I was the one that was securing, uh, procuring what those three dimensional items would be, what the costs were going to be, putting the entire program together working with the creative staff, working uh, whether it was uh, graphics or writing, working with them and translating to them what we wanted to get across. And so that account executive role was the key to success there was strategy and communication itself. You had to be able to understand the strategy and then to communicate it because you know that story about I tell you something, you tell somebody else that, and the story changes. Of course. So as a really good account executive at Catchem at that time, you had to be able to listen really well when that client talked. And you had to dig and you had to really see what their strategy was and what they were what they wanted at the end of that program, what was going to come out of it. And then go back sit down with the creative team, the writer, the designer, um, the production people, and line out the timing, the costs, the, the messaging. And remember, you don't have the account. You're just lining it out. Right? Right. right. So you have tremendous amount of work and time in that, just getting it ready. And then the boards, the, the presentation boards, Today, you go in with a computer, you flip the top up, you can change the presentation in five minutes. Here, these were all, many of them done by hand, um, boards, literal, you know, um, what do they call them? Uh, fiber boards, right. and ones that you held up, you know, you'd, you'd hold it up and you'd talk about it and you'd put it aside and you'd Old put the next one, yeah. You know, and you'd talk about it and and then you'd, you'd tell them you had to translate to them back their own vision of what they wanted
0: crazy man that's it. so you're you're the director i you know have to draw a parallel to like being any sort of creative director like even a movie director or a just an artist of any of any sort or of a company you have to creatively effectively communicate to you know an entire department of people the final vision
1: well right? you're small you have small teams they're yeah. smaller teams so uh, we would have an art director, we have a writer, um, and we'd have a production person assigned to us.
0: And you have to understand all these fields in your position, though, right?
1: Yes, and yeah. and you have to understand them at that point. And so you, you know, the the beauty of of that was it gave me a really strong foundation it, it, towards my later career. True. Um, people come out of school today, and I talk to young people now and again, and they'll you know they right away they want to they want to run the world <laughs> they want to you know be an account executive or be a this like you know get out there you and be the, the marketing manager for me it was you know truly paying your dues right i mean it 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 sounds old school you can use that phrase and it's true cuz you 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 know you become an accounting executive first of all yeah even you know what an accounting executive does but you have to forge those relationships with the writers and the directors and the whatever because these people you know they have to get, you have to gain their respect first off and then you have to work as a team right so you so it's all, it's all layers so i've been i've worked for an agency i've worked for a company directing the advertising out of that company then I worked in sales. So then by the time I came back, you know, we're talking many years later, and um, could sit down. And I've sat with advertising agencies, big ones, you know, especially when I first got back you know, from my sales assignment to becoming a, a marketing manager and sat down with them. Now I've, I've sat you know, with pool dealers. I've sat with distributors. I, you know, and they'll put something in front of me. And I, and I remember sitting in my first meeting and my old boss, who was, who was sitting there, and uh, w- with us now, he's kind of working for the team, and I'm directing what's going to happen. Uh, and it's not with Ketchum anymore. It's now it's with PPG, and I go in and they show me stuff. I'm like, no, that isn't what happens out there. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've been out there. I've sold. I've, I've battled. I've lost. I've won. That isn't how. That isn't going to resonate. So it takes years. It
0: takes years. Do you think the whole concept of paying your dues is lost on the younger generation? Maybe due to just like instant gratification through whatever technology, social media, you know, there's kind of, you kind of get sold a dream. As soon as you graduate, you could be this. And a lot of that times, I feel like that's just not true. And people are disillusioned
1: by that. Um, I, I sit with, some older colleagues on different kinds of boards and whatnot and listen to them. And they'll say what you just said, that they want this instant gratification and whatnot. I would have to say that, certainly sitting with my sons and his peers, that that is not the case. Good. Um, I, I think there are a lot of really bright young people out there that understand that they have to go through different kinds of... Um, activities in order to be able to and and experiences Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's the greatest time ever to be a young person in business today it's just phenomenal the tools that are available the speed of learning the speed of communicating the fun of it all Mm -hmm. the ability to figure things out on spreadsheets that you can do pivot tables and whatnot, that we used to have to sit and do, you know, obviously by hand, and even then when Excel came out and whatnot, the amount of work it took us to learn that, which is today, you know, second nature to, to people. But I, right. I am just so excited for the younger generation. I think that this is a wonderful time, COVID aside, yeah, yeah, a course. wonderful time for young people, and just nothing but great opportunities ahead as guys like me reach certain points in time in their careers where they're going to finally hang it up or do something else and i think that the you know the younger people that want to really make a mark for themselves have all the tools and everything available to them to do it
0: that's how i feel i feel like i have no excuse not to you have all the tools yeah. You know, no matter what qualifications you have, you have access to way more than any other generation ever did.
1: Which yes. Which begs
0: the question: Do you ever think what you would do differently if you were a young person today, or how you would approach, you know, maybe your same goals as you did, you know, forty years ago or so?
1: I would say um, it goes back to what you said a little bit earlier about going after things and not letting them uh, hold you back. Like you don't have maybe the education for this or that, but mm-hmm. um, you know you can't go blindly at it. You've got to do a little bit of studying to understand what it is. Um, but as a, if I were, if I were going back, I would say, I wish it was a little more gutsy. Wow. Wish I was a little more gutsy. I wish yeah, I would way? have have um, broken out a little more been a little more forceful in some of my opinions and uh, taken the consequences, good or bad, but expressed them. Uh, I, when I was younger, I met a guy uh, that was from an advertising agency. Um, was called, the advertising agency was called Tandem and his name was Don Smith. And Don Smith was, was quite a bit older than me. And we were driving along one day and I was saying to him, I feel like no one's listening to me. You know, it was 20, at that point, probably about 25, 26 years. I feel like no one's listening to me when I'm talking about certain things, when I feel about these, no one's listening to me. And he said to me, there's going to come a time when they will listen to you and you better be right more than you're wrong. And I thought that was really great advice. You know, that time will come. Uh, But I think people... Uh, need to express themselves and need to listen in return right the reasons why someone may not want to go in a direction and try and learn from that and prepare yourself for the next time that you may have a strong feeling about something and someone brings an objection to you so I todays a great day for young people it is and I'll tell you something else too that that I feel very strongly about, and I tell my kids this, I think that uh, diversity in business is one of the greatest things that there could possibly be. Because it, it allows for a richness of thinking and discussion that, that in my early days really wasn't there. Um, it was limited. It was just emerging. Today that field is rich and cultivating yeah, there's still some you know things that hold women back or minorities. Of course. Because um, that's just the nature of things as, the, as they evolve. Of course. But sitting at a table with a whole group of people that are from a variety of different backgrounds allows for whatever you're working on, as long as they're expressing themselves, to be complete. Genuine. Complete. Yeah. And that's why this country, should be able to kick everybody's ass. And that's why this country still has as many patents, still holds the, the, the number of patents that it does because it has that richness of, of thinking. Uh, that's, my, that's a personal opinion, but that's what I think. That's, that's pretty
0: strong though, I, I agree with you. Yeah. It's, I think, if, well, you know, to go back to what we were saying about technology and everything today, I think just the ability to connect with somebody that's so different than you into, on the internet has just exasperated everything, you know, good and bad, but a lot of good, especially in business and communications and just having a, you know, I have little sisters that grew up with an iPhone, right? You know, that's even to, to me, like I taught to them and I feel like an old man, <laughs> you know, it's crazy, but they have such like an innate other understanding of like other cultures and other people and it's just because it's out there and they have access to it and they can see it and even someone as young as me not that i'm super young I'm 26 but you're super young <laughs> that i mean we i didn't i didn't grow up with an iphone in my hand so i you know i did wasn't ingrained in me i mean i could guess you could use it in a bad way too but uh choosing to see the positive of that i think that will only continue diversity and make it expand and good good things will happen
1: well, and, and diversity also, you know, especially in business, uh, the idea when I was younger, they talked about, well, the world is shrinking, and the world is shrinking. Well, the world is shrinking, and uh, commerce is 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 worldwide, and things like uh, exchange rates and uh, laws of doing business in various countries uh, is is extremely. Um, uh, relevant, and if you don't, you know, you don't really understand that. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to work that much harder to understand that if you don't appreciate it. And my son, uh, he started a job with a with a company that's a a, um, a a consulting firm, and he went to India. They sent him to India, awesome. and while he was in India, they were teaching him about, you know, I'm probably going to get this wrong after he listens to it, but they were teaching him about teamwork, how to work in teams. He was a freshly minted new employee, and they take like 30 kids to India. And they take them off uh, one day, and they said to them, okay, you guys are going to make a film. Uh, They broke them up in teams. My son ends up on this one team, and um, you're, you're supposed to you know come up with your own themes and whatnot and so he being you know westerner and whatever and they vote him as the team captain and so he's saying okay that their sketch was to um you know be able to uh ingrain some sort of panda figure into the workplace or whatever and so he puts together the script for this thing and these guys, there's Indians there, and there are Americans there, and there are, who knows, they're, They, they are big diversity. And so the Indian folk that were sitting there, the, the Indian um, colleagues of his, they look at his script and they say, well, nobody will understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like dumbfounded by this whole thing. No one will understand that. They said, now, if you, if you were to teach a panda to dance, people, of a culture here would find that hilarious, and that would be teach a panda to dance. So he rewrites the script on teaching a panda how to dance. Okay. And they dress up these and they have film they have a film guy there and everything. So these teams are all filming it and they're going to have an awards banquet and everything else. And he says they say put this panda film up and they're teaching the panda how to dance. Okay. And the audience is in stitches they love it. And they win, his team wins. Awesome. So there's a perfect example of you know, he said, I, I, everything I wrote down seems so logical. And they were like, no, no, people will, <laughs> people here won't get that. Sure. <laughs> you know, and so he walks away from that experience saying, okay, I get it. Yeah. You know, I need to um, be more sensitive to how business runs and what, what kinds of things influence business. That's an interesting
0: you know? point. Teach a panda how to dance. Teach a panda how to think, dance. We all think, keep that in the back of your head, you
1: know? Yeah, well, it's he would tell the story much better oh, than, sure. than i'm telling it but yeah so i think business is great today i do i i good makes I can, me happy to hear that yeah i for for folks like you You're a and so many guy. other i i'm extremely um positive about that extremely positive about that
0: have you always been a generally positive dude yes i like that about you i can tell Yes. That was a trick question. If you would have said no, I don't think I would have believed you.
1: Okay, so I think it's, for me, it's, I'm a junkie of uh, the next thing. Yeah. Okay? Sure. So this podcast is one of the next things. I'm a junkie for all this. That's great. I want to try it. I want to see what happens.
0: Well, obviously, you, uh, I mean, you took the turn in your career, your life to become a writer, you know, this late in the game. That's a pretty ballsy move. That's a pretty, looking ahead to the next thing, you know, jump into it.
1: Yes. I don't know if it's ballsy, but I will I say, think it's ballsy. I, I'd say I haven't quit my job. I'm not quitting my job. I'm not going into this, but I've certainly put enough time into the, you know, years and really decades.
0: your dues are for that too.
1: Yeah and, yeah. and learned how to do it. And, um, I'm excited about my writing. Uh, I am always willing to learn. And so people can take a look, you know, with like today's writing, Mm-hmm. There somebody helped me with it, edited, um my spelling, my grammar here and there, um certain things uh that um you know, that helped me to um readjust a few things. But and I look at that and uh, you know, at first you're like, Oh, that's my piece of work of <laughs> But I'm always, I always wanna know how to make it better. Always wanna know how to make it's it better. It's a tough better. process. It's it, you have to have thick skin sometimes. You do, very much. Yeah. So, to go back to the
0: story at the beginning that you read, what, just to, you know, frame it up, timeline it for the, for the series that, that we're doing, in between the ending, when the bird sits on your shoulder, and the epilogue, you know, where you end up on Neville Island, do you go back to the produce yards at all to work, or is, was that your last day? No, that produce?
1: was, that, I, it wasn't my last day, at that, at that was my last year. That was your there. last year? Yes, okay. it so, my last year.
0: So, did anything... Pivotal will happen during your last year in the, in the produce yards that we might glance over if we just read the short stories? Um, not to put you on
1: the spot. There's nothing that we haven't read in the short stories themselves. Okay. I think um, that what, what, what these, short, these short stories do too, depending on especially for me because I'm writing about myself mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if I mentioned it the last time or not, but it forces you to go back and find some of these people and it's been a lot of years and it's very hard to find them and the owner Stan who's mentioned in there passed away uh, the next year after I uh, the the last year that I worked there which was uh, probably 76 77 he passed away the next year and um, and I remember, you know, I drove out to uh, I drove out to the funeral home, and his youngest son, who was sixteen at that time, came over, and it was very, you know, for a young dude my age, and he was sixteen, and he came over, and I remember him, you know, hugging me and crying, and um, and I didn't see that guy again for forty plus years, wow. since I I went to look for him, right. And I found them. I couldn't find I couldn't find anybody. No one would return my calls. No one would do I couldn't find these people because you know today if you want to look up somebody's telephone numbers it's hard as hell. Yeah, this guy I find through LinkedIn of all places and I write to him and I say hey, do you remember me? He says hell yeah, I remember you. Wow. I said well, let's have breakfast. <laughs> I like it. So I, I went and I had breakfast with him and um, so as far as that story and those people, right. you know, Sully passed away. I don't know what happened to Jimmy Cow. I know that, uh, you know, a number of those guys passed away. And, of course, Mize Jet Air Cells is no longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, for years after that, I did. I'd go down there at different times and go see them Check and in. see the boss not the the, well, the boss passed away the year after, but I mean it's I'd see the the other bosses that were down there and um, a lot of the people I sold pro or delivered produce to, even Penn Mac I delivered wow. n- nuts over to Penn Mac. I mean I, so when I go into Penn Mac, I mean for me it's it's like such a wild experience. I bet.
0: Is it important for you to do that to return to your roots so to speak to keep you kind of, you know. I don't want to say down to earth like you're fool yourself or anything like that, but is is that a, like a therapeutic process?
1: I don't think of it that way. Okay. I guess I, I, I see it as a progression and I accept that. Or, I don't long for those days. Sure. You know, I I I have nostalgic feelings about them though. Yeah, man, absolutely. Very nostalgic. And I share those that nostalgia with a lot of people. So even the stories we have here uh, have read so far. Um, at lunch, at work, uh, we'll sit at the collaboration table. Everybody has their, has their lunches out. And they'll, there will be readings from time to time, either from, from the short stories or from the book. And people will sit because I want the feedback, right? Yeah, I want sure. them to say, I didn't get that. I don't understand that. Um, or I love that. Or I got bored. Uh, those those help me a lot so I share my work quite a bit and then even like the produce yard so then we'll sit and talk just like we are yeah about what happened so, so. what's
0: what's next what can we, what are we looking forward to in the next uh, episode
1: well I have uh, I have a number of stories that I'm kind of searching through and as we were talking okay. about going going chronologically yeah um, I think maybe we are we may uh, we may do uh, a, a story I call burned okay. and uh, you know for your audience it'll be yeah. it will be surprised because I'm not going to talk about what it is because it's it, it's it'll, a perfect example of trying to change my writing yes. and to do something completely different and it worked but it We'll leave it up to your audience to see if it worked, but for them, but it it works for most everybody that read it.
0: It worked for me. I'm excited to talk about that one. Yeah, it's I agree. good for this time of year too.
1: Yeah, we yeah. Now that's heavy nostalgia, that, and that, that that particular story. It's not that I yearn to go back, but the nostalgia has is really um, been uh, blighted, mm-hmm. and that that is sad for me. Sure. But it lives on in my mind, so that's the important thing. I
0: think nostalgia can be positive, you know. It just has to be, you know, kind of carefully treaded. You yeah. Can't live there, you know. I think as long as you don't long for that like perpetuated childhood or adolescence or anything like that, and refuse to accept it, I think nostalgia could be incredibly beneficial. So I th- I think that story captures that, and I'm looking forward to talking yeah. to you about it a little more.
1: I really enjoyed today. I enjoyed
0: today too. This is good, man.
1: Okay. Appreciate
0: it. any final uh, any final words. Any closing?
1: I Do think we, we covered we, we covered a lot. We covered a lot, and and certainly for older or younger uh, people, um, many of whom will be able to identify with what I've talked about, and some who are just starting out. You know, it's keep at it. Yeah, just keep at Stay it. Stay relevant.
0: Stay relevant.
1: Stay relevant.
0: We'll leave you with that. Okay, that's great. Okay. That's great advice. You you do stay relevant, man. That was awesome.
1: I think this was.